and they're off. Awesome. All right. Well, for the rest of you, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 23. I love preaching out of Psalms because it's so easy to find. You just open your Bible in the middle, and you're pretty much there. Right? You just got to find the right chapter. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I'll tell you what, I think this is the first time in my life I've preached a sermon on Psalm 23. And it is, you know, John 3.16 is probably the most popular verse in the Bible. I said this to somebody this morning. John 3.16 is probably the most memorized verse in the Bible. Psalm 23 is the most memorized chapter. It's a very popular chapter. And one reason I think, I guess in my mind, the reason I've stayed away from it is maybe I've thought on some level, maybe it's more sacred or, or there's, it's just territory that so many other people have dived into, dove into, daved into, I don't know. We, old joke. Uh, maybe it's just something that I, is, is above me because so many others have done it. And as I was preparing this week, I just I felt drawn to it. And so uh, here we are. And most of you have memorized it. I memorized it for the first time when I was about seven years old uh, in King James English. Yeah, I'm old. Uh, just kidding. Uh, the, the ink wasn't fresh on the King James Bible. Uh, but uh, then I memorized it later in the NIV, which is fine. But today I'm, I'm reading it out of the Christian Standard Bible Translation, and you'll understand why as we go this morning. But if you will, stand with me as we read from the Word this morning. It's a Psalm of David, and he writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Let's pray again. Father, I just pray you are glorified in this. I pray you use my minimal talents, whatever they are, to convey your word, that it be your word. Not the agenda of the pastor, not the agenda of a church, but Lord, your word for your sheep. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message is simply, The Lord is My Shepherd. It's easy to remember. It's the first few words of the, of the first verse, right? And it's a beautiful passage. In fact, I was talking, it was Georgette this morning, we were talking about how this passage is kind of a sandwich script. We've talked about those before in the literary styles of the biblical writers, that there's a theme and then there's something in the middle and then there's a, another slice of bread underneath it. And we kind of see that with the Psalms. There's beautiful imagery, by the way, paintings and beautiful visuals have been inspired by this Psalm. Beautiful, lush, green, prairie comes to mind. Not like you'd see today outside, but the idea of just this beautiful, calm river flowing through 
where sheep come and relax. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure many of you have, have seen paintings or pictures that, that are done to tell the story of this song. It's beautiful imagery. And like I said, many people have studied it. Many people have written books about it. In fact, you could probably preach an entire six-week series or 12-week series, perhaps, off this chapter alone. And it's deep. But if we are to truly understand the, the gist of what is being said in this passage, the one point I hope you take home with you, the one thing you should write down in your notes or whatever, it is simply that we are most fulfilled in Christ when we are fully following Christ. I'll say that again. We are most fulfilled in Christ when we fully follow Christ, when we faithfully follow Christ. As we look at this, we're going to notice there are a few things that happen the, the writer is talking to you, the reader. He's talking to me. He's talking to us. He's telling us, the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. And he describes what his, his being under that shepherd looks like. But then, around verse 4, he begins to shift who he's talking to. It's not you, the reader, anymore. It becomes worship. It becomes a prayer. It becomes this, this thing he is now saying to the creator. He is now speaking to his shepherd. The imagery shifts. We go from the idea of God the shepherd to God the gracious host who protects us in the presence of those who would wish us harm. Again, it's beautiful. If we were to put three points to this message, it would be easy. It would be simply God's love is persistent, God's love is protective, and God's love is permanent. But I didn't do that this morning and think that far ahead, I guess. But it doesn't nullify the fact God's love is persistent, it is protective of us, and it is permanent. We are most fulfilled in Him when we fully follow Him. We look back at verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. Now, this is what separates the God we claim we serve from the pagan deities. In Near East cultures, it wasn't uncommon for a king to come along and say that he was a shepherd at one point. To say that he was brought up as a shepherd. Now, that tells us one of two things. Either being a shepherd is awesome training for one day being a king, or these people were lying. And the chances are they were not being truthful. They were pagan kings. Lying was not beneath them. Yet we see in the Bible very clearly there is a shepherd who becomes king. And he was trained to be a shepherd. He was someone who had fought the bear and the lion. And when the time came, he fought the giant. And he was raised up and he was blessed and anointed by God to be king. You see, this is the difference between God that we serve and, and, and the pagan gods. Where they claim to have done something great. Where they claim to be something wonderful. Our God delivers our God is who he says he is. He is the good shepherd. 
We see no better example of this than in 1 Kings 18. When we look at Elijah and the prophets of Baal, what happens? There's a drought going on. And Elijah says, you know what, today we're going to find out whose God is real, who's, who really is the God of Israel. And so they get together and, and they have this sacrifice and they're going to see which God is really true. Who's going to call down the fire from heaven? And so they, they get around and Elijah, a courteous guy that he is, he says, I'll let them go first. And they begin to cut themselves and they begin to scream. This is in 1 Kings 18, by the way. You can fact check me on this or follow along. They begin to cut themselves with swords and spears. And the Bible says about noon, Elijah began to mock them. Because those who would deceive God's people are worthy of mockery. That's what they are worthy of our derision. And Elijah begins to say to them, Maybe you should cut yourself a little deeper. Maybe you should shout a little louder because he's really God. Right? Oh, where's the fire at? And so they, they do. They cut themselves. Blood is gushing out. They're screaming. They're shrieking. And yet Baal, their God, is silent. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. Why? Because he's a block of wood. He's not a God at all. And then Elijah, in humility, he says, you know what? Pour some water on the sacrifice. Let's make it even harder for Yahweh to deliver because you're going to see his power. And what ends up happening is the God of Scripture, the God, lost my shoe, the God of, this is why I don't do the walking on the floor thing. (laughs) The God of Scripture delivers. Fire comes from heaven. You see, pagans make the claim, but God delivers. Isaiah 40 carries this idea of him being a shepherd. It says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have gone their own way. And when Jesus comes on the scene in John 10, he calls himself the good shepherd. And the implication is, I'm the same God of Psalm 23. I'm the same guy. That's what they're to understand. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 20, says he's not just the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the best shepherd imaginable. Psalm 28 tells us the Lord is the strength of his people. He is a stronghold of salvation, for he is anointed. Save your people. Bless your possession. Shepherd them and carry them forever. Because only Yahweh, only the God that we serve, only he has the power to truly save. Only he has the power to truly shepherd his people. And more than that, you know, it's one thing for him to be the shepherd of Israel. It's one thing for him to shepherd all Christians. But David does something powerful here. He personalizes it. He says, Yahweh is my shepherd. And the unspoken question is, is he also yours? Do you also follow this shepherd? For the Christian, we have to understand that 
Yahweh is Christ. Christ is Yahweh, like I pointed out a moment ago. We see this very clearly in the Old Testament. In Psalm 2, for example, it reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire against the Lord and his anointed one. The anointed one, by the way, that's Meshach in Hebrew. It's where we get the word Messiah. When it comes to the Greek, it becomes Christus or Christ. So the, the nations rage against Yahweh and his Christ. We know as his son, his beloved son. But when the when the verse ends, or the, the chapter ends, it says, pay homage to, or some translations say, kiss the son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. All who take refuge in him are happy. That's something we say about God the Father. That's something, that's an attribute we attribute to Yahweh, that he is our refuge. Martin Luther said, a mighty fortress is our God. He, he wrote that inspired by Psalm 46. Psalm 110, it says, This is the declaration of Yahweh to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, Jesus is going to quote this in Matthew 22. And he says, How could David call him his Lord if the Lord is to be a descendant of David? Well, the only answer is simply that at some point, Yahweh is going to take on the form of a man through the lineage of David and rise up. And be the Christ, be the Mashiach, the anointed one. My argument is if we follow Christ, then, if we are Christians, if we are truly servants of Jesus and we are pursuing him, he is the good shepherd. He is the same as the Old Testament God. Deuteronomy tells us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It's the same God. We follow the good shepherd. We, we submit to the great shepherd. But the question then becomes, is he your shepherd? Is he truly my shepherd? We read this, we see, Yahweh is my shepherd. I have what I need. But what's the traditional text? I shall not want. Right? Almost every other translation takes it to mean this. Why does the CSB do this? Why does it say, I have what I need versus I shall not want. Well, I, to be honest, if you really think about it, when you look at the Hebrew, the, the I have what I need is probably a slightly better translation. The, the idea of I shall not want almost sounds like a rebuke. Like I can't want. I should not want. Right? We see that. That's not really what it's saying. But focus for a moment on what it's not saying. It's not saying... All the riches of the earth are yours because all the riches of the earth pale in comparison to our shepherd. All the riches of the earth pale in comparison to him. It's not saying we're never going to go hungry. It's not saying we're never going to need help. It's not saying you're never going to run out of gas or need to buy new clothes or things like that. No, it is saying the greatest desire of the human heart has been fulfilled. The moment salvation touches the heart of the sinner, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I shall not want because I am satisfied in him. 
Psalm 37, 4 says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. And we sometimes will twist that and we'll turn that into something it's not saying. What he is saying is he will take the desires of our heart and replace them with his desires. Desires for him, desires to pursue his love, desires to read his word and spend time in prayer to him. In Christ, our desire is his will, not mine. But I have what I need. It's literally saying there, I will not lack. It's not just spiritual fulfillment. It is also some physical fulfillment as well, in meaning that we lack nothing. In fact, Nehemiah does tie this to some physical provision from the Lord. Nehemiah, of course, happened much later than when Psalm 23 was written. And in a sense, what he does in Nehemiah 9, 21, he connects Psalm 23 back to something that was said in the law in Deuteronomy. He says to the people, you, or I'm sorry, he prays to God. He says, you provided for them and they lacked nothing. And the wording he uses here traces us back through Psalm 23 to Deuteronomy, to the people when they were in the wilderness, when they were in the desert, their clothes didn't wear out, their feet, their shoes didn't get holes in them, okay? Because they lacked nothing, God provided for their every need. He ties it to Deuteronomy 2.7. That's not a prosperity gospel, by the way. That's not saying that if you come to Jesus, all, you, all these things are going to happen. That's not what he means. He's saying you will lack nothing. God will provide for your needs. It's a, it's a message of fulfillment. God does not cater to our material wealth. He's, he's not saying because you do this, God will do that. Because you say this prayer the right way or fast enough times or things like that. No, he's saying that when we are following the shepherd, the shepherd will take care of his sheep. He'll fulfill our needs. Matthew 6, Jesus says something very similar. He says, don't be anxious. God knows what you need. Seek him and he'll provide for you. And what humanity truly wants and truly desires and truly needs is God himself. They need an encounter with Jesus Christ. And when we have him, we have all our satisfaction. We have all our needs met. All the joy and fulfillment that we experience in our life comes from him as we, as we enjoy the good things that our life offers. We see in verse 2, he lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. A good shepherd would lead his flock to a place of nourishment. The great shepherd leads us to spiritual nourishment. We see a similar idea in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, provide for my physical needs. That's okay to pray that. It's okay to ask for that. We're not asking for excess. We're not asking for a Ferrari, right? We're asking the Lord provide for us. And God does this. God being the good shepherd, he provides for all that we truly need. In fact, for his church, he provides under shepherds. That's the pastor. That's the role of the pastor. Poimenos is the Greek word. It often gets translated shepherd. 
And the idea is that the under-shepherd takes food from the storehouse of God and feeds the sheep, serves the church. That's what, the, that's what we do when we preach, is we are taking God's word and, and giving it to the people as we preach and we serve and feed the flock. When we get to the book of Ezekiel, we see that there were some bad people doing this very thing. They were doing it wrong. They were doing it poorly because they were bad shepherds getting fat off the flock. They were abusive leaders. They were abusive prophets and and priests and things like that. They were those who would abuse their power and manipulate the people and lead them astray, much like those prophets of Baal. And God himself says in Ezekiel 34, he says in verse 14, I will feed the sheep of my pasture. I will feed them with good pasture. They'll lie down in good grazing land, and I myself will be their shepherd. And that's a scary thing to hear if you're an under-shepherd. You've not been doing your job, so God's going to take over. The supervisor steps in. The green pastures, they, they represent safety and sustenance, and that's where he takes us where he gives us satisfaction and he gives us rest. There's this idea, what's, what's the original translation? He, he makes me lie down in green pastures, right? That's the more common way we read it. This week as I was looking at this, and I, I, was, I looked at this passage in about seven different translations, and the CSB says, he lets me, and all of a sudden this, menta- this mental picture comes, he makes me lie down in green pastures, and I just thought of God coming up and just pushing us down. Lay down. You've got to lay down. I'm going to make, some, somebody once said, well, he breaks the legs of his sheep. I don't see that in the, in the text. I don't know where that came from, but I've heard that. To make us lie down. He doesn't force us to lay down. I know there are some cliches out there. If, if Satan can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And to get, for God to get your attention, he'll make you stop. And there's a grain of truth to that, perhaps, but truly God lets us lay down, and many Christians still don't. They want to be busy. I think, and, and, and this is Pastor Jeff's opinion here, okay? This really is my opinion. I think it has a lot to do with how a believer is discipled and how they come to Christ this idea that I have to continually earn my salvation or I have to do something to get something from God, that there's this idea of that that happens. I might be wrong in that, but it's how we're trained to believe sometimes. But that's not what David says. When he is the good shepherd, when he is my shepherd, I don't need to need or I don't need to want, and he lets me lie down. The imagery comes to that of Martha and Mary in the book of Luke. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, being taught along with the men, which didn't really happen in that day, by the way. And she's being taught, and her sister Martha is in the kitchen. You know, I I can still, the, the thing in my mind is my mom trying to, wash dishes and I hear the Tupperware banging on the sink and I imagine that's the the noise coming from Martha she's just so frustrated and things are banging around and and that that green Tupperware I just have this mindset of that you know bouncing around as she's frustrated and finally she comes to Jesus and says Jesus you know I'm trying to do all this work and Jesus says oh but Martha 
Mary has, has chosen the good part. Mary has chosen to just be let down in the green pastures. She's chosen to be nourished with the word. We need Marthas, don't get me wrong, but we also need Marys. We need time to do both. We need to, when he gives us those opportunities to rest, we should do so. And it's only there that he nourishes us at his feet and we learn. He leads me beside still waters. He lets me and he leads me. He's in control as we follow him. In him we have rest. He leads us. The, the actual wording here, the literal translation would probably be something more like, he leads me by waters of resting places. So when he is leading us, when he is letting us lie down in the green pastures and he's leading us beside the quiet waters, he is renewing us. He's feeding us. He's letting us drink. He's, he's quenching our thirst. He's filling our hunger. He's giving us safety. And we drink as the deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O God, writes the psalmist, Psalm 42. You ever notice if you really break it down, all of verse 2 speaks to God nourishing his people, making us healthy, not starving us, not driving us like cattle over thousands of miles to wear us out, but giving us rest, bringing us maturity as he grows us, as he feeds us, as he sustains us. That's what I mean when I say we are fulfilled as we follow the shepherd. He's filling us. Verse 3, he renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Now, there's another translational thing there. He renews my life or he restores my soul. Which is it? Yes. <laughs> Both. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, uh, all who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We have a new life in him. We have had our soul restored as we were made righteous in the Son. But we also have new life. This is actually referring to the physical renewal that, that sheep receive when, when they're fed, when they're watered, when they're well-rested. And we don't do this for ourselves, by the way. Jeremiah points this out in Lamentations 1, 11. He says, all people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. And the idea is they're trying to do it for themselves when there's a good shepherd who will do it for them. Psalm 19.7 tells us that, that this is really imagery of God reviving us through his word. The Lord, uh, Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. He revives us through what he has told us. Now, obviously, our soul is restored through the cross, but the word, the Bible itself provides daily nourishment for us. The idea of daily bread, the daily drink, it's reviving our soul, it's restoring us. 
the daily intake of our scripture reading. It's something we should be very protective of. I was talking with someone this week, and they said, I can't ever just find time to read my Bible. I said, you need to make time. That is God speaking to you. So many people, they say, I want to hear God speak. Read your Bible. No, no, I want to hear God speak to me out loud. Then read your Bible out loud. It's his word. Oswald Chambers said, the Bible doesn't thrill, the Bible nourishes. Give time to reading the Bible, and the recreating effect is as real as that of fresh air physically. Another pastor I, I read recently said, some books inform, some books reform. This is the only book that transforms. Amen. If, you, if you do not find nourishment. And church, this is a... If you don't find nourishment in the Word of God, you should ask yourself, do you know the shepherd? If you don't enjoy reading Scripture, you should ask yourself, do I really know its author? Now, if I don't want to hear Scripture, then you don't want to hear truth. You don't want to hear what Christ has to say to his church. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. If you're not reading your Bible, you're not hearing the voice of the shepherd. In his word, we're nourished. But it's also his scripture that leads us on the right paths. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my path. If his word is not leading you, if it's not guiding you, you can't expect to be restored or nourished by it. Notice for a moment the, the wording here in verses 2 and verses 3. I mentioned this for just a second before, but he lets me, he leads me, he renews me. Church, it's only him. He is the only one who can do this. We cannot do this for ourselves. Trying to do it our way is what made the cross necessary to begin with. If we could give ourselves true rest, we would. If I could earn my own salvation, I would. If we could lead ourselves or renew or restore ourselves, we would. But we can't, so we need the shepherd. We need him to lead us. We need him to take us to the cross. And yet verse 3 makes it very clear that he does this for his name's sake. God is very protective of his name. If you call yourself Christian, you have come under the name of Christ, literally in the name, Christian. And those of us who bear that should seek him above all else. In Ezekiel 36, it is God speaking to Israel, and he says, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned. The Psalms sing to us of God's love for his name and his protection of it. As he continues to forgive us and set us right, it is for his name, his reputation's sake. Psalm 25, 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. 
Psalm 31.3, for your name's sake, you lead and guide me. Psalm 106.8, he saved them for his name's sake. When we follow him completely or we, we find our fulfillment in him completely, we faithfully follow and he is faithfully fulfilling. He is faithful to love, faithful to give, faithful to provide, faithful to protect. And that takes me to verse 4. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even in the darkest of valleys, the Christian should have no fear, no anxiousness, no panic. Now, I know that the more common reference or common translation is valley of the shadow of death, right? How many of you have ever heard of that? Of course we have. The, uh, the illusion for us, the, the allegory or the, I should, um, the imagery, I'm sorry, that was the word I was looking for. The, the imagery we're looking for there is that of the Valley of Sheol, where they put the dead bodies. It's a terrifying place. It's a gross place. It's a place nobody has any business just strolling through on a Sunday afternoon. And yet when we find ourselves there, what that tells us is that even though God provides for us, even though God leads us to green pastures, even though he takes us beside quiet waters, even though he is in, in charge 100%, even when we are 100% following him, we are not promised to always have green pastures. We're not promised to always have the quiet waters. There will be times of trouble, times of terror, times where we have to trust him to be the good shepherd. Those times in our anxiety, we fall asleep just saying, I trust you, Holy Spirit. I trust you, Holy Spirit. Turn my page too fast, sorry. This idea of the rod and the staff, they are a comfort to David, a comfort to the writer. Because when we're in the darkest valleys, when we're in those places, joy can still be found if we just remember to look to his light, to his guidance, to his discipline. That's what those things represent. No matter how or where or what we are doing, the issue is not just how we are led, but how we follow the shepherd. We fear no evil. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Says Psalm 27. The Lord is the st my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. Isaiah picks this up and he runs with it. Isaiah 43 too, he says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. That, that tells us we're going to have to walk through fire. We're going to have to walk through turbulent waters and, and hard times and things like that. But the comfort, the joy is who goes with us with his rod and staff at the ready. In the New Testament, we're told God uses hardship for his purposes. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds, for we know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, writes James. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 8.28, I've seen this pop up a lot on Facebook lately. Romans 8.28, for all things work together for the good of those who love God according to his purposes. Thing is, not everything works together for good for everybody. It's for those who love God, for those who are fed by the shepherd, for those who follow his lead, for those who come behind him. And they say, it is not just for my good, it is for his purposes. Not my will be done, but his will. It's not my good that I'm always seeking, but his good. And through his good, through his purpose, we're fed, we're protected. Think back to Joshua. Joshua is taking over from Moses. You talk about big shoes to fill in your job, right? Pretty tough act to follow, that Moses guy. Not only did he do all these incredible miracles, he even told us he's the most humble guy. We wouldn't know he was humble unless he told us. That's how humble he was. No, I think, I mean, whatever. Bad joke. Nobody's laughing. Move on. But three times in the first chapter of the book of Joshua, three different times God tells him, be of good courage, don't be afraid, be courageous, don't be frightened. And finally in verse 9 he says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be, afraid, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you are. God knew the battles Joshua was going to face. God knew the city of Ai was going to be a place of defeat temporarily. God knew every soldier David was going to, to send off to die in battle. And yet God says, don't be afraid, Joshua. I've called you. I'm leading you. You're go I'm going with you. When God has called you, when you have answered that call, when you have given your life to him, when you've submitted to his call, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and you've accepted his salvation. He is with you where you go. Now, the Bible's very clear, don't put God to foolish tests, so please don't go pick a bar fight at a biker rally or something like that. That doesn't mean God's going to bail you out necessarily. But if you end up someplace dangerous, you can trust that he is going to provide. He will take care of you. He will watch over you. His will will be done. And that brings me back to the rod and staff. They're shepherding tools. You know, they keep the sheep together. There's a hook on the staff. When the sheep get out, gets out of line, the, the hook has to be brought to bring them back and onto the path with the rest of the sheep. The rod is for discipline. We don't like that. We don't want God to get out the rod, but yet that's how he keeps us, knowing his his voice, his love is actually established in his discipline. He keeps the sheep together. He keeps us united. But the discipline, the Old Testament says God brings discipline with a rod. Second Samuel 7, 14. I won't read these for time's sake. Second Samuel 7, 14, Psalm 89, 32. God brings discipline with a rod. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 12, it reminds us that God disciplines those he loves. We don't like it, 
But it happens. It's meant to bring us into alignment with his will. We see this again, these, the rod and the staff really, if we were honest, is another way of seeing scripture. That scripture keeps us on the right path. It's from God, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All scriptures God breathed or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. And here's the kicker, here's the one we don't like, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, scripture is more than just guideposts. It's more than just a book we get encouraging phrases from. It's more than just picking and choosing what we like. It is all there for leading us in a closer relationship to Christ, drawing us closer to our shepherd. Keeps us on the right path with him. And again, the same thing goes for the under-shepherd, for church leadership, for the church All correction, all training, all of this must be rooted in the Word of God. It has to be grounded in Scripture. There are times, there are, I mentioned this, I believe, last week, there are difficult conversations we may sometimes have to have, but we don't do that with calloused hands or calloused hearts. We do that with Scripture at our foundation, at our basis. Times we have to talk about good manners, church growth, leaving the worship team alone before the service, things like that. That has to be said sometimes. David says the rod and the staff are a comfort. Why would David say that? Because he's a leader. And David understands as a leader that it's much more comforting to have something greater than yourself to point to and say, Scripture says this. I'm not saying this because I don't like you. I'm not saying this because I don't love you. I'm saying this because I do love you. And scripture says that we are supposed to be this way. For the person under the discipline, scripture is a comfort. Oh, it's not personal. God really said this. I should be able to look and find that in, in my Bible myself as well. This is how the Spirit grows us. This is how the, the Spirit unifies and, and builds up the church. Through Scripture, the Spirit inspired. When we come to someone in a, in a disciplined way or, or a hard conversation, it's not, well, God told me you're being a real jerk. No. It's Scripture says you're being a real, no, don't say that. It's just seeing if you're awake. Scripture says, the Bible says, Now, that doesn't mean we're not led by the Spirit. I definitely believe we should be. I believe there are gifts of the Spirit, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, things of that nature that definitely continue today. And we should utilize those. We should use those. But where Scripture is very clear, we don't have to look any further. Scripture is sufficient. When we understand that, when we understand the inspiration of Scripture, that will dictate how much we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. All the questions, all the concerns, all those things we seek as we follow Christ are fulfilled in Him and in His Word. Finally, we go to verse 5. I I said finally, because that was a long point. But 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is the, the, the writer changing his speed. 
We've gone from the shepherd's field. We got out of the valley of the shadow of death. And now he prepares a table for us in the midst of our enemies. And if you look outside the window, they're watching. They're just on the other side of the door, glaring in. But yet the shepherd has now become our gracious host. And he's protecting us as he prepares a feast while they watch on. Understand, while we enjoy our meal, we don't, we don't have to be worried about what our enemies might do to us because the shepherd and the host are the same person. Now, if you notice in your Bible, in the, in the text today, it's the present tense, and in some translations, it's a future tense. The Hebrew here is actually a continual sense that he constantly is preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He's constantly trying to nourish you, to feed you. It's a continual act God does. And those who would defraud us, those who would envy us, whose, whose greed and jealousy makes them want to do us harm and ruin us, those who would rob us of God's blessings, they are forced to watch on as he sets the meal, as he sets the table, and we begin to dine as God's blessings come upon us, they're forced to watch as he loves us, as he protects us, as he nourishes and restores us. But being in the presence of our enemies, that's a, uh, that's a real problem for some people. Because we're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to pray for those who persecute us, right? That's what Jesus tells us to do. And we are supposed to do that. Don't think I'm contradicting Jesus. Don't think that for one second. But just because you pray for them doesn't change that they are your enemy, that they do want your ruin, that they do want to bring you down. That may not change. The hope is eventually they will not be your enemy, but a brother in Christ. But that doesn't always happen. We live in reality. Amen? Good. Most of you are still awake. Good. And in spite of them, in spite of all the damage, all the pain they would love to inflict, it doesn't stop him. It doesn't stop the host from pouring your glass. It doesn't stop him from giving you a sandwich. It doesn't stop him from any of that. He's going to continue to bless, nourish, love, and renew us. Now here's the thing. There's the thing we miss in Psalm 23. God is our gracious host. He is protecting us while the enemy is at the door, while the enemy's peeping through the window. He's guarding us. In this culture, and I'm not going to step down again today, but uh, I already lost my shoe. In this culture, you have to understand that if people came to the house and wanted to harm a house guest, the host had to protect his guest at all costs. I've read through the Bible probably two times a year for the past four or five years. And I always get to this one little spot in Genesis, drives me nuts. There's this scene where Lot has these two angels come to his home in Sodom. And he, he takes them inside. And what happens? Well, how many of you are familiar with the story? Okay, two, three of you. All right. Well, here's what happens. The whole town, all the men come together and they start banging on his door and they say, hey, send those men out so we can rape them. 
People say, no, Sodom and Gomorrah's greatest sin was gluttony and sloth. And no, you're not reading about the same Sodom then. They want to harm his guests. And as a father of two daughters, my heart breaks when I hear or I read Lot saying, please don't do this. Take my virgin daughters and do with them as you will. And I look at that and I hear, I, later I'll read Peter say, righteous Lot. How is that righteous? That's so disgusting. That, was, that is so unloving. So horrible that a father would give up his child to save someone who, oh, <laughs> do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see what's happening? This is the culture. You give up your own child to protect someone who doesn't necessarily deserve your protection. The enemies are out this outside the building watching you feast, but it has cost the host his only son. The wrath that was supposed to be poured out onto us, the, the pain that we were supposed to have inflicted upon us was inflicted because our gracious host put his son in our place. That's the beauty. That's the depth of Psalm 23, and we're just scratching the surface this morning. That's how come we can enjoy the blessing of God. That's how come we can enjoy the feast because he's put his son outside where we should have been. That's what Lot did. He says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This idea of having your head anointed with oil, that is, that is Psalm's talk for a blessing. Psalm 45, 7, you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed your head with oil, the gladness beyond your companions. Uh, Psalm 92, 10, you've exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You've poured over me fresh oil. Psalm 133, how blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil poured upon Aaron and Aaron's beard down upon his collar. All these things. He's blessing us. His blessing takes place with the enemy at the gates. And our cup overflows. You understand your cup. This is your expectation. If I said to you, hey, bring your coffee cup, we're going to go to the sugar pallet this afternoon, we're going to see how much coffee they'll put in our cups. And you come and you bring a little thing like this, I'm going to think he's not too serious about his coffee. But if you come and you bring a bucket, well, that tells me your expectation, right? And what, what is your expectation? Where is your, where is your wanting to receive his blessing? Our, whatever it may be, whether it's this little thing or a bucket, it says, my cup overflows. His blessing, his love that he lavishes upon us, his restoration, his protection, it's more than we can ever expect. It's more than we could ever really want. It reveals that we are more than fulfilled in him when he fills us as we faithfully follow him. Finally, verse 6. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. 
How many of you read that? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. The word mercy that you normally read is the Hebrew word hased. You've heard me talk about this before, likely. We see it in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, not there, and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Hased. And faithfulness. The mercy that Moses uses is the word rahim, which I mentioned last week. Now this is hased. It's a deep, loyal, faithful, unmoving love. Only his goodness and only his loyal love will pursue me. Our shepherd is so good, so merciful, so loving, so faithful. He fulfills our longing hearts. He fulfills our spiritual needs. He takes care of our physical needs. If only we seek him with a whole heart. But the question comes, was it, is, it, is it pursue or is it follow? Well, I think the CSB translators are merely trying to get across the, the point in modern English. The Hebrew word is radaf. And it means it is consistently, constantly chasing us. When I think of follow, I think of somebody who just kind of stands behind you, right? Or maybe, maybe you went to the church bathroom this morning and you walk out and there was something trailing on your shoe, a little piece of white paper. Maybe, maybe that's what's following. That's, the, that's kind of the imagery when we read he follows us. No, this is pursuing us. This is chasing us down. It's not trailing behind. It's tracking us. It's hunting us. God's goodness and his loving kindness will find you wherever you are, whatever you're going through, his goodness, his love, his relentlessness. It's what we see when he says, I'll leave the 99 and chase after the one. It's the same kind of love that stands out every morning waiting for the prodigal son just to come home just enough where I can see him. And then the father says, I'll run to him and I will embrace him, kiss the child, give him new clothes, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, kill the fattened calf. It's that kind of love. God wants to be our fulfillment. He wants to lavish that love upon us. And you understand he wants us to adore him the way we adore, or I'm sorry, yeah, the way he adores us. I said that wrong. He, we, he wants us to adore him as he adores us. But how? How is that possible? How could we possibly reciprocate such love? Someone who loves us so relentlessly, passionately, sacrificially. There's no matching that. There's no way I could ever compete with God's love but we can rest in him we can follow him we can submit to that shepherd and obey and seek him because he's the Lord and the Lord is my shepherd I have what I need he lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Praise God. 
We are most fulfilled in him when we faithfully follow him. But we come to that last line, that last line, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or I'll dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Because here's the thing, it's the same thing. As long as I have breath in these lungs of flesh, I will praise the Lord. But because he's my good shepherd, because I follow him, that little hiccup we call death, then I get to worship him in his presence for all eternity. Because to be apart from this world is to be in the presence of Christ. We are fulfilled in him for eternity as we worship him together. Speaking of worshiping them together, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back and we're going, to, we're going to close this morning. I would challenge you to take your Bible out this afternoon or even today while we're worshiping. It's only six verses long, Psalm 23. Don't just read it. Pray it. Mean it. Is he really your shepherd? What else could we want? I would ask you this, when's the last time you were nourished by his word? When's the last time you felt peace from his spirit in your spirit? Has his goodness and mercy and loyal love, has it, has it caught up to you lately? If not, why not? I would challenge you to ask that question this morning as we close. We'll close in prayer. It's easy to memorize Psalm 23. It's a lot harder to let it take root in our heart. You've heard me say this before. A lot of people will miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance from their brain to their heart. If all you have is Psalm 23 here, but you don't have it here, then he's not your shepherd. So this morning, I would just challenge you. Pray that with, with me.